I did give you an assignment before this break. So I, I'm wondering uh, uh, if, if you were able to discern anything new about the practice of mindfulness uh, during this break. feel that way? Yeah. Uh, can you relate that to anything we talked about earlier? I feel weird if I'm talking to somebody else and I have, I'm preoccupied with something else. It's kind of like if you're really trying to be, I'm trying, not trying to be mindful, trying to, but I find, unless I really had something to say, I don't really, when I'm in that mode, I don't really want to talk to other people. <laughs> so much. Yeah. Unless there's something that really needs to be said, as opposed to just because it's nice to talk to people. Talking, being mindful while you're talking to somebody is, it's a very difficult thing to do. As a matter of fact, it has it has something to do with the reason that whenever we go on retreat, nobody talks. <laughs> because talking makes you lose mindfulness right away, even listening. I've always found that if I go on a retreat and there's Dharma talks in the evening, you know, first few days I don't mind, but after I after the mindfulness is really strongly developed, I, I, I know that those just listening to somebody else talk is gonna shatter my It was just it was sort of anecdotal, but I, I was at a Thich Nhat Hanh retreat first before your retreats, and when I came home and practiced deep listening, my husband said, "What's wrong with you?" And I said, "I'm deep listening." He said, "I thought you were having a stroke." skills for being being mindful in the sense that you are capable of sustaining a strong <laughs> in, uh, peripheral awareness that is introspective at the same time that you're carrying on a conversation then uh, you're not you're not really how to put it um, we talked about the power of consciousness last night. You have to have a certain power of consciousness to be able to be consciously aware of what's going on in your own mind at the same time that you're paying attention to what the other person is saying and paying attention to what you're saying. If you don't have that and you're trying to be mindful, then what what's going to happen is your mind is going to, there's not enough power for both at once. So it's really alternating back and forth between them. And that's where the awkwardness comes. It's the same thing as when 
somebody's talking to you, but your mind is on something else. Your attention is divided, and it feels awkward. And not only that, you're always at great risk of missing something and misunderstanding. So, which isn't one of the things that we want mindfulness to make happen. We, we don't want to have, we don't have, want to have poor quality interactions with other people uh, and, and misinterpret and misunderstand what they're saying because we're trying to practice mindfulness. <laughs> so, keep that in mind. And it's better to be totally present from the person you're having a conversation with rather than trying to be introspectively aware at the same time when you don't have the capacity to. Beth? It can work really well for you though in that if you are practicing that meta-awareness while you're talking to someone, it makes you more receptive and you don't, like I'll, someone will be saying something to me and I'll think, oh, you know, and I pick up the making a judgment about yeah. it right away. Right. I can take that away and then I'm more open to what they're saying, actually saying. And that's where you want to get to. And when you have, when you have the power to be mindful at the same time you're having a conversation, then you have exactly that kind of meta-awareness. You, you are aware of your own reactions as they're happening. You may be about to say something and you realize that it's coming from a place that you know, you're not really interested in having something come from, and so you can interrupt it. And there's a lot, of, it depends on the conversation. It depends on who you're talking to, and it depends on what you're talking about, how mindful you can be. If you're, well, some conversations, obviously, you're just not going to be able to be very introspectively aware. So recognize that. That's mindfulness. Recognizing that you can't do these two things at once. And so instead, be totally present for the person and for the conversation. Uh, of course, if you think about it, some of the conversations that that's most likely to be true of are conversations that involve an emotional intensity. And so they're the situations when you would benefit the most from having mindfulness. But uh, if you can't, you can't. You know, if, if you're trying to do something that you're not capable of doing, you're, you're, you're more likely to misunderstand uh, uh, and, and react inappropriately. So know what you can do and know what you can't. But you'll get better at it as you go along. As you, as you, the two things, as you have more, as being mindful becomes more automatic, and that's a skill because you're practicing it. And the other is as you have a greater power of conscious awareness, because you've been practicing it, they both are the result of the same thing. As that happens, you'll be more and more capable of, of being fully present in terms of attention, while also sustaining uh, an introspective awareness of what's going on in your own mind. And that's exactly where you want to get to. But you have to, you can't jump to there. And so if, you, if you're not, 
you know, if you haven't practiced it long enough and you haven't got the skills enough and you try doing that, you'll have this feeling, this uncomfortable feeling because you realize that I can't really pay attention to what this person is saying and pay attention to what's going on in my mind at the same time. So be mindful of that. And of those two, well, sometimes you just let the other person think you're having a stroke. But <laughs> <laughs> But other times, be, be, be fully present. Um, if, you, if you can't be as mindful as you'd like to be in any given situation, or if it turns out that you just lost all mindfulness, there's a point where you realize that. Right? And it's not too late to apply mindfulness to the situation at that point if you can reflect honestly on what happened and you can see you can see at that point oh this is the feelings that were arising in me and that led me to speak in that way and and part of it is is being honest and acknowledging that it's it's too bad i said that because it had this unfortunate effect that I wish it hadn't, and it's too bad I was so attached to my emotions because uh, for the next hour I felt so upset. Didn't do me any good at all. Didn't do the other person any good. So when you apply mindfulness retrospectively, it's still going to to have an effect. We didn't, you know, that's getting into how mindfulness does the wonderful things that claim to bring because it will change you in a way that makes a difference the next time something like that happens. So the short answer, after a long answer, the short answer is, is if you realize that there's a situation where you, for whatever reason or another, couldn't be mindful or weren't mindful, you can always reflect on it afterwards and apply mindfulness. What if you, I mean, a lot of times this happens to me, I almost make the decision not to be mindful. Like at some point there is a little choice in there. Yeah. I'm going to let go with like the emotion. You're going to let the emotion go. Right. Um, have you, it, does this happen because you evaluated that under these circumstances that's probably the best thing to do? I I don't know that I've like fully evaluated it, but th- I do see that there's like two ways to go sometimes, yeah. and then I'll go for the like. Yeah. Well, that's mindfulness is really about knowing that there's choices, right. which creates the possibility that you can make better choices. Um, but you don't always make the best choices. So then the other part of mindfulness is just afterwards being honest about what the consequences were and whether your choices were appropriate or not. That, that's, where, that's where an element of learning will come into it. Yeah? I've had that experience often too, and I find that um, the reason for, for choosing um, to not 
go in the more mindful direction is uh, is laziness. 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 So, um. what do you have any any? One well, one is laziness, and the other is like a certain rebelliousness. Um, <laughs> <laughs> do you well, have any any? Well, let's. We almost need to get more details of a, for example, kind of situation. Well, um, I have sort of an ongoing battle with my son about schoolwork. Yeah. And uh, and there are moments when I when I when I I know that the right thing to go to do is to just let it go and let him do whatever he wants to do and you know crash if he needs to crash. But um, but it, I don't want to exert the effort to to just let it go. I mean. You know, there's there's an effort that needs to be exerted to say, okay, I'm not going to go through my normal pattern of just you know demanding that he do the work. Uh, you follow me? And so and so, I just go with the habit because it's easier. Yes. So you, you make a choice in that as to what you're going to do, uh-huh. but mindfulness isn't just about the choice. It's also about why you made the choice and the consequences of the choice. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, sometimes what you've described is a situation where I strongly believe this should happen. And I recognize that it may not be the best thing to do. But I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah. Okay. That's really common in many different forms. What being mindful in that situation means is trying to get in touch with, well, why is it that I'm so attached to doing it this way? And why is it that I'm so resistant, even though some... You know, once again, think of yourself as all these different parts. There's some part of me that knows that that would be the better thing to do. Why is it that I insist on doing this other thing? Anyway, what's the real reason? Yeah, That's but, being mine. But the, where the where the obstacle comes is in not wanting to go there, not wanting to do that ah, okay. uh, out of laziness or just saying, you know, the hell with it. I'm just not going to bother with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and then the other part about mindfulness is, you see, I'm assuming from what you said that you do already understand that not doing what you do would produce a better outcome. Okay. So, what do you do You've made that decision, you go ahead and you insist that your son do whatever it is. What do you do afterwards? Do you look at the way you feel? Do you look at the way your son feels? Do you look at the outcome in terms of the schoolwork? I do sometimes. sometimes. Well, the times that you do, does it, do you have, is it obvious to you that that 
I'd feel a lot better right now if I hadn't done that. Yes. And he'd feel a lot better right now if I hadn't done that. Okay. And uh, maybe the schoolwork would be done better if I hadn't done that. I don't know about that one. But you don't know about that one. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, well, uh, the fact that you don't know about that one suggests that, you know, Maybe that's where the that, that's where the problem is. Mm -hmm. that, yeah. may, that may be the part of it that you haven't quite reconciled. But uh, there are other parts of it too. I mean, you are attached to uh, what happens with your son. That's obvious. You know? So all these things are involved. You can look at them. But if you if afterwards you say, "Oh, now I'm all upset, and he's all upset," and, and I'm so stupid, why did I do this? Nothing's accomplished, okay? Because whatever whatever part of your mind that was in control and made you behave in the way you did has gone back to sleep. It's withdrawn. It's gone back to his room, closed the door. And another door is open and some other your mind other part of your mind's come forward and said, Okay, it's time to beat ourselves up. So, what you did reinforced that part of your mind that tends to do this all the time. And the time you spent beating yourself up about it reinforced the part of your mind that believes it should beat you up every time you do something like this. So the net effect is you're probably even more likely to do the same thing the next time. And you're probably even more likely to beat yourself up This is karma. <laughs> you are the result of your karma. <laughs> Mindfulness would be where you examine what happened objectively, as objectively as you possibly can, without judgment. You know, that means, without judgment means the, 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 the part of you that wants to come and beat yourself up has to stay in their room. <laughs> right? There's no judgment. There's just what really happened. Is this good? Is this is this is this achieving my most deeply held goals? Because you see, it's probably in conflict. Your goal is you want your son to be happy and successful and do well in school. And if you really examine this objectively, what you might find is that the very thing that I want that drives me to behave in this way is being is being frustrated by the outcome of me behaving in that way. That is an extremely important piece of information that that part of you that makes you behave in this way didn't know before. Every part of your mind is perfectly logical. And so you keep acting in a particular way because all the information that that part of your mind has available to it says this is the only thing that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But if you provide it with this new piece of information that, you know, this actually sets us further back rather than further ahead, that's a new piece of information. Not for you to consciously <coughs> think about 
although if you, you may become consciously aware of it, you may have kind of an aha experience. Ah, oh, my goodness, that's just making things worse. That's fine if you do. But it doesn't matter if you if you it's conscious or not. The thing is that if you have this clear realization that this isn't working, then that information is going to go through that part of, of, of your mind that makes you keep trying to make it work in this way. And it's going to realize that this isn't really working and it's going to change how it responds. So that the reflection after the fact, a reflection that is more objective um, and more detailed, will have an impact then on the next time when this situation arises. And that moment when there's the realization, I should not go this way, yeah. but I still do. Yeah. You know, but it, that what will happen is in that moment, in exactly the same moment you first described, there will come the, the thought, the realization that this doesn't really work. And in that moment, there will be the recognition that I'm just going to feel lousy about this later on. That is going to, that's going to have an impact on whether you go ahead and act in the same way again. You know, and even if you do act in the same way again, you can do the same reflection again. The net effect of it is going to be that at some point you, you're going to change the way you react. And even more importantly, in the course of things, you might, you might become aware of some aspects of what's driving your behavior that you never realized were involved at all. You know, I mean, I could hypothesize and fantasize about all kinds of things that might have happened in terms of you and your going to school and your parents and everything else. But it would not be at all surprising to find out that there's elements of your own past experience that are operating here that you don't even know are there. You think you're just, oh, I'm just concerned with what's best for my son. Now, I know what the school looks like. But there might be some other things going on as well. If you become aware of those, then it, it's going to be a, a really big game changer. Yeah? Can you just clarify how it can be an unconscious awareness that then can produce beneficial behavior change? Well, yes. I would invite all of you to think about the activities that you engage in in the course of the day and how many of them are automatic and how many of them that the origins of those behaviors have not involved a conscious weighing of alternatives and decision-making process. The reason I invite you to examine that is because the more you examine that, the more you're going to come to realize that you don't make decisions so much as you become conscious of decisions that have been made at an unconscious level. What you're usually conscious of when, you, when there is a conscious decision-making process, is a few different thoughts that come up out of the unconscious. And they may present some pros and cons. So you have the conscious experience of weighing different factors. 
And then you'll have the conscious experience of a decision crystallizing out of that. And then you're, as a part of, your mind will, as a part of its ego construct, tell a little piece of story that says, well, I thought about this and I thought about that and this is what I decided. But it's not really what happened at all. It's different unconscious processes presented alternatives, came to a consensus, and then the ego construct construct assimilated these as its own. That's a pretty dramatic difference from the way you usually think of things, right? That's something that's really worth talking about, thinking about. (laughs) I I heard somewhere um, quite a while ago that um, somebody estimated how many, uh, what percentage of thoughts that we have daily are unconscious and repeating thoughts, that that we think very few original thoughts Mm -hmm. in the course of a particular day. (laughs) So having heard or read that, you know, I started to become more aware of how very true that is for me and um, how those rote thoughts form my behavior and my actions. You know, even the most mundane things like where you turn a corner in the house and, you know, to the most, you know, minutiae, you know, there, there are these patterns, these unconscious patterns. We're like rats in a maze, you know. Um, (laughs) So, uh, you know, I don't know. I found it helpful to try to become more and more aware of that rote behavior and thought patterns. Um, So I suppose that's related to what what was just said. Yeah, it it is. It's very much related. That's that's sort of the... uh, background story to the whole practice of mindfulness is, is is the way the mind really works. The mind is a lot of unconscious processes working in an extremely logical way but with limited access to information. Everything you do, when you order lunch today, that decision is going to be determined mostly by things that you don't even become conscious of. You may become conscious of the process. You may be, it's, it's possible that you'll become conscious of all the, all the factors there. But a lot of times you'll have the experience. You, you go into a restaurant, you scan the menu, and you say, okay, I'll have that one. And you don't really know why you chose to have that one. It's a result of unconscious processes. Because consciousness is an, it's an after-the-fact kind of thing. Consciousness is the way these unconscious processes communicate with each other. You've got all these different little minds inside your mind. And the way they communicate with each other is by causing you to be conscious of something. So you're trying to decide whether to meditate or not. So some one of these mental processes causes you to be conscious of its reasons for meditating. 
Well, the you that's conscious is the rest of the mind. So when I say that one, some part of your mind makes you conscious of the reasons why you think it would be a good idea to meditate, I'm really saying one part of your mind makes the other parts of the mind aware that there is this reason why maybe you should meditate. And then some other part of your mind might chime in and say, yeah, that's true, and then here's this other good reason. So you, which is the collective, become conscious of both of these good reasons. And then some other part of your mind says, yeah, but... And then you become conscious of that. And eventually there will be a decision. And it's true, you made the decision. But not you as a singular self that you might have imagined you were. It's you as a collective of mental processes came to some sort of agreement. Some sort of agreement? It could be the sort of agreement where you sit down and have a fantastic meditation. It could be the sort of agreement where you sit down and the argument goes on. <laughs> but do you get the picture that I'm painting here? Um, yeah, consciousness <coughs> is how unconscious processes communicate with each other. Yeah. So it seems to me earlier that when you were talking to Beatrice about um, you know the way that we can hope to change unhealthy, you know, or unhelpful patterns of behavior, not so much by trying to change them, but by almost like taking a, a clinical observer's aspect, you know, and saying, oh, this is what's happening, and this is, you know, this is what happens next, and almost like watching ourselves do the unhealthy thing, mm -hmm. and then watching what happens during, and then watching what happens after, and that that itself is the secret, or part of the secret, to really making a change, you know, really making a major shift in behavior, and not so much, you know, thinking about changing the habit, or regretting the negative thing we did, or or feeling, you know, any kind of emotion that we might feel, any kind of, you know, bad feelings we might have. Is that, is that kind of what you were saying? That's kind of what I'm saying, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. The, you can regret what you're doing, and you can have an emotion associated with it. What's really important about that is that being in a state of regret is not pleasant. And if you, if what becomes really clear is that that by doing this thing, I have created unpleasant for my pleasantness for myself, that's going to make the difference. Because there's a very good chance you don't want to make yourself more unhappy. That would take quite a bit of courage. I don't know why it seems that way to me. Um, it, it takes, it does. It takes quite a bit of what we would tend to think of as, as courage. Because, once again, think of it as these different parts of the mind. And just as people feel threatened when what they've been doing, when they're told by somebody else that what they're doing is not working. Mm -hmm. So do the different parts of your mind feel threatened? And so there's a resistance. 
And uh, so, yeah, it, it, that resistance means that you have to have courage to proceed with it. And in a sense, the courage is really coming, is coming from a more global appreciation that this is the right thing to do, it is the right way to go, that it's worth proceeding in that way for some reason. Yeah? This is my understanding of what I perceive as psychotherapy, that it's making responsible choices for one's <coughs> being conscious of them and then deciding. Is that my being? Yes. Uh, many different forms of, of uh, psychological therapies are trying to, in one way or another, accomplish uh, the same thing that mindfulness does. Um, you know, and it's even the case that for a particular individual, sometimes one of these psychotherapies would be uh, very, very beneficial. Somebody's practicing meditation, practicing mindfulness, it uncovers a major problem. It's a real sticking point, and sometimes the therapy will will help them through it. Um, anybody who does mindfulness practice is doing really important therapy on themselves. Really important therapy. Um, it's actually a lot faster, a lot more effective, and takes less time than most forms of therapy. But as I say, there's some circumstances where some formal therapy is actually going to work better. Because of the nature of the situation. No offense to therapists in the room, of course. <laughs> I'm not a therapist, but there are therapists in the room. <laughs> there are, therapists should teach mindfulness training. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I do. Um, I define psychotherapy as applying mindfulness to emotional awareness, pure and simple. Mm -hmm. Applying mindfulness? Well, I'm not sure. What do you mean by emotional awareness? What's the emotion you're feeling? How are you reacting to it? Okay. How did it come about? Yeah. So you can say, as being mindful of your emotions, being introspectively aware. Yeah. Exactly. That's what I heard. Yeah. I just wanted to say that, uh, 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 is it Psychology Today, the periodical that just came out on the cover? It, uh, it is so interesting. I mean, mindfulness is taking psychotherapy in the nation by storm. And there's a, a cartoon on the, on the cover where there's the traditional psychiatrist, and he's at his little booth, you know. And there's hardly anybody, if anybody, in front of him at that booth. And then there's the other booth and says mindfulness. There's this long line. I mean, and for, psych, for psych, the field of psychology, psychiatry, and therapies like this, this is a real revolution. Because mindfulness and the Buddhist approach to it, you know, not too many years ago was considered quackery. But it's, it's really becoming... Uh, extraordinary, yeah. a, a real centerpiece of therapy. I just thought I'd mention it. I think it's exciting. Thank you. That's, yeah, it is exciting. It's exciting. It's a, a very interesting thing. All of us, you know, I, I talk freely about unconscious mind, subconscious. I don't know if you realize that, but before Freud, that would have probably left everybody in the room with a totally blank look on their face 
if not ready to walk out the door. So we know so we have such a better understanding of the mind, thanks to Floyd and everybody that followed him and the work that they've done that's led to all of these therapies. But there's a really an amazing thing too that in the East, the, the idea of unconscious was just as unfamiliar to people in the time of the Buddha. And actually the Buddha never explicitly taught about the unconscious. But as Buddhism developed, you know, and uh, as people practiced the Buddha's teachings and as people tried to understand uh in essence, they were trying to understand the psychology behind what they experienced through their Buddhist practices and through meditation in particular. They generated a theory of the unconscious mind, which is extremely powerful, it's extremely wonderful. Um, it's a theory that, well, the things that I'm talking to you about is actually it's the Buddhist idea of the unconscious. And within it you find why it is that we feel like we're a self, but there really is no self. You understand what the Buddha meant by karma. Karma said intention. I mentioned intention earlier. Uh, we talked about intention a bit. What the Buddha had to say about intention, chitana, he said, when I say karma, which translated means action, he says, I mean chaitana, which is intention. And he went on to say that it is your karma that makes you who you are. You are your karma. You are the results of your karma. You are the inheritor of your karma. And you are the creator of your karma. Everything that you are. And that's really what we're talking about here. Yes? I'm going to go back to the <clears throat> attention and peripheral vision uh, awareness thing. Because I'm wondering if I have a habit of what I think is mindful use for those. It's actually more what you're talking about with it going back and forth. And the example... I'd give this right, right at break. Um, I needed to eat because I hadn't had any breakfast, but I was much more interested in the conversation um, I was having with friends. And so I really, really was focused on the conversation, and I thought that I was also peripherally aware of the food, and enough so that it came to my attention that we didn't have any spoons <laughs> to eat it. So I had to eat cereal. So I went and got spoons. Yet I'm wondering, how do you really discern when you're jumping? Do you know what I mean between attention and peripheral, or or jumping objects, and when you're really steady with peripheral uh, vision kind of being cultivated? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. How how do you how do you learn to recognize? What I've told you is 
that attention and peripheral awareness are two different ways of knowing that occur simultaneously. And then I also introduced the idea that there's a kind of alternating attention which is can look like peripheral awareness, but really isn't. Right. Yeah. And so you, your question is, is how can I really learn to recognize the difference between those two? And of course, the reason for wanting to is so that you can cultivate them. And it's it's going to be much more difficult to do in the course of your daily life than it is in meditation. Mm -hmm. Meditation provides a, a specific kind of mental environment in which it's much easier to do that. But then once, once you've succeeded in recognizing the difference between attention and awareness in meditation, and especially once you've been able to, to practice with those and strengthen those, then that will carry over into your daily life and it will be easier to, to tell the difference. There is not, though, there's, there's always some overlap of both of these. In your peripheral awareness, you're on the one hand aware that breakfast is available. Mm -hmm. You're also aware that there is a, of the intention to eat because you know you'll be happier and more comfortable if you eat before you came here this morning. Mm -hmm. Those things are in your peripheral awareness. And one of the things that peripheral awareness does is it draws attention to salient bits of information. And so... Like no spoons. Yeah, so you have them. <laughs> like what? She said like no spoons. <coughs> like, like no spoons. no spoons to eat. Yeah. <laughs> but you see what I'm saying? There's the peripheral awareness and the attention's on the conversation. Mm -hmm. And peripheral awareness does its job. It calls attention to... To, to these facts. So you have these fleeting moments of attention that are the result of peripheral awareness doing its job. Mm -hmm. And the more, the more peripheral awareness you have, the more effective your attention is going to be utilized. And the more introspective awareness you have, the the easier it's going to be for you to find an appropriate way to both have your breakfast and continue the conversation. But do you see what I mean? You can easily see, you could sometimes feel like you're going from focus on the conversation to, and just jumping, that the focus then becomes the food, for yes. instance. And how do you know when you're not doing that? I mean, obviously, you're staying on the conversation, and somehow this is building. Well, like I say, in meditation, it'll be really easier, much easier to see the difference, and that's what that's what I was trying to point you with this morning. And we'll do we'll do some more things like that that were I'll guide you to just work with your attention and awareness so that you can recognize them more easily. But see, the peripheral awareness was there. That's the only reason that the attention went to those things. In the meditation uh, this morning, you said uh, you took us to a place where we were kind of having um, an open field. We, we, we could have thoughts or hear what we heard or body sensations. And um, the particular instruction was to hear but know you're hearing, or uh, feel sensations but know you're feeling, have a thought but know you're having a thought. And um, to me, 
it, that felt uh, like I was, I wasn't using so much energy. I wasn't doing so much control. Um, and then I thought, well, why? It felt like I was having less control, doing less, spending less energy, doing less controlling things than I had been doing previously in meditation. So then I thought, in the break, I thought, why? Why did I think that? What? And the only thing I could think of was that the action of the process of bringing my awareness from uh, a, a, a bigger field of, of, of hearing and, and sensation inwards uh, was in fact a form of controlling, which is taking energy. Um, and I thought, I thought this idea of what is controlling and what isn't controlling, it, it's difficult, it was difficult for me to to kind of get to, particularly because when you when you said just allow yourself to, to know that you're feeling or know that you're thinking, that felt like there was a continuity of knowing there, continuity of awareness. And I thought, well, then it doesn't matter what my attention is doing so much, as long as that continuity is there. Should I not be putting doing so much controlling in the process to get into that, in terms of narrowing the field down? Uh, and so what, I suppose what I'm saying is that I don't really know when I am trying to direct my attention, how much of that is a more of a forceful thing, or more of a controlling, or, and, losing, and using more energy, or <coughs> Well, once again, it's the intention that you formulate and hold that's going to really, that's going to really produce the result. Right. And there's a certain amount of effort that goes into that intention. Uh, you can't really, you can't directly control peripheral awareness, introspective or extrospective or otherwise. Um, it's, it's, well, I'll just leave it at that. You can't directly control it, but you can indirectly control it. If you have the intention, if you have the intention to know a particular thing, then the way that peripheral awareness responds anytime you have the intention, if you have the intention to pay attention to something, peripheral awareness will selectively take those things, pick them out, and bring them to attention. Um, the end result of that is that those things are prominent in peripheral awareness whether or not you actually pay attention to them at all. So having the, for, if you formulate <coughs> the intention to be aware when I'm, ha I have the intention to be aware of when I'm having a thought. Okay. So my attention will go to a thought and my peripheral awareness will say, you're having a thought. I don't know if I'm answering your question or not, but all of the effort needs to go in having a really clear intention. And the clearer the intention is, then, then the more that everything else will, will come from that. And also, even the effort that goes into attention decreases over time. The more time that you spend having the intention to know when you're having a thought, the more automatically 
the more that becomes programmed into the functioning of peripheral awareness. And so the more that the more likely peripheral awareness is to pick up that piece of information and make it available, even when you don't form that attention. See what I'm saying? Uh, I think so. Are you saying that if you if you have the intention to narrow your uh, attention down closer and closer, then during the process of meditation, you're not actually in control of that so much as the intention that you have is doing that for you, and you just become aware of that process. Yes. Um, and so, what is it that we're doing then when we're trying to force ourselves to narrow, to bring the attention down closer? What is that process that's going on? You know, the, the one you said is inefficient. Because um, I know that I'm, I, it does feel like I'm forcing when I'm forcing. Am I trying to go against the intention? What, what, what's... Well, <clears throat> it feels like I have a choice to force, to, to direct in one way or the other. That's all. And sometimes maybe, is it making the wrong choice when I'm trying to force myself in a certain direction? Or well, when, when I was talking about it earlier, what I mostly had in mind is that <clears throat> you have a thought process that I am doing this, I am making this happen. And that produces a mental state, a kind of emotion that says, oh, I'm striving. And neither one of those things is really accomplishing anything at all. It's, it's using energy, but it's not really making anything happen other than you have a strong feeling that you're striving. So the idea that I'm striving is the, is the, is the thing that's creating the energy. Yeah. The idea that you're striving is taking energy that could otherwise go into the intention and the action that flows out of the intention. And, but it's not really contributing to the action of the intention. Okay. I think, I mean, I don't know if this is what you're confused by, but I know I'm confused by this thing of the I. You know, it's the I, the eye that we identify with, the sense of self, our solid self, and our, the control we think we have, but we really don't. And I mean, I think in the language, what what you I get caught up with that, with mm -hmm. the eye, is problematic because there is no eye. And so then, when you speak that way, I sort of get it, but I sort of don't. And and then it gets to free will and all these things. I don't know, I'm confusing probably the whole matter, but it's the I that I guess I'd like you to talk about a little bit. Uh, <laughs> a little bit? Give <laughs> me like five years or so. Well, <clears throat> yes. What the eye, what, the what, what is this eye that we seem to have but isn't real? <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, everybody here has heard that, 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 that there really is no self, right? Anybody, is that new to anybody? Everybody's heard that. 
Um, how many of you know exactly what that means? <laughs> how many of you know? How many of you can defi- define the self that isn't real? Does that help you to understand the self that you don't have? Ah, uh, sometimes, yeah. <laughs> no, really, it does. You know, because if I think of myself as, as um, if I think of all the things that have gone into creating my sense of self, they're all not me. You know, they're all other than me. And and so mm-hmm. then my sense of self becomes uh, much more dissolved. Mm-hmm. You know, and much more kind of almost other. other. And I think that's positive. Well, I would define self as the experience of self as having two parts to it. One is a mental construct, an ego construct, and the other is a feeling, it's a sense. Can you go with me on that? There's this idea of who I am, and there is this feeling that I am. And I have the feeling that that there's three attributes to the self. One is singleness. I have the feeling that there is only one of me. Right? Does anybody feel like they are several different selves? You do? Some people do. Some people do. Yeah. Even even there, though, most of the time, I would warrant that you think of yourself as being one and having been the same self for a long time. You may intellectually know that, well, I've changed and I won't be the same tomorrow as I am today. But don't you have the sense that there's only one of me, that's one of the characteristics, and this, this one self that I am is enduring. It was here yesterday, it'll be here tomorrow. Uh, it's, it's been there as long as I can remember, and I expect it will be there at least until I die. And that's the second characteristic of what we feel. And the third thing is you feel that the self is real because it's something separate. Quite obviously, there is the self that is different, separate from everything else. Do you agree? You all have... This is... It's there planted really deeply in your psyche, this, this feeling that I am one, I persist, and I'm separate. Your mind has created a construct around that, has a whole lot of attributes that it attaches to the self. I am this, this is mine, I like this, I don't like that, I feel this way, right? And this is, this is the ego construct. 
it's been built up over your whole life. And actually, it's not one either. Because your ego construct, if you examine it, is made up of all of these different ideas. So yourself, you're absolutely right. Yourself is many. It's not one. The other thing about yourself is that if you honestly examine your ego construct, well, it's obvious that it's constantly changing. So it's made of many different parts, and they're constantly changing. So this kind of gives us an image, then, of an entity with a boundary. Within that boundary, and within that boundary is the self. And granted, it has all these different parts. And granted, some parts get taken away and other parts get added in. But within that boundary, whatever's in that boundary is what I call myself. That's the, that's the separateness aspect. So this is the illusion we live with. It works really well. If you didn't regard yourself in this way, it would make life difficult to manage. It serves a really good purpose. That's why you were born with a brain that inevitably was going to construct this idea of the self the way it happened. Because it's a very workable solution to the problem of uh, keeping this particular mass of protoplasm alive and functioning in the world. Yeah. I have a background in Tibetan Buddhism, mm -hmm. and like one of the practices we were doing that was like helpful to me was you, know, you meditate on death mm -hmm. in general, and you know for yourself, and um, you know you get really sad. <laughs> yeah. That makes you really sad because you're what you're starting to see is everything that you attached yourself to in this life, including right. your idea of yourself, is going to just be gone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I'm not going to get to see my partner's face. I'm, you know, everything that I've held dear is just doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's an interesting practice. Yeah. It is a very interesting practice. And, yeah. uh, and, and, and it's worth thinking about. And what's really surprising is you come to the end of the process, and the conclusion you come to is, why why am I afraid of death? Because I'm going to miss me when I'm going. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Wait a minute. How can, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> so... But yeah, this, this is a construct of our mind. But the reality behind it is parts. And the reality of the universe, the reality of any object is it's made up of many parts. It's the result of causes and conditions. It's constantly changing. And whatever nature we perceive it as having is imputed to it by the mind. There is no cutness in this mass of electrons, protons, and neutrons. It, it, all of its cutness comes from mind. 
my mind, your mind. It will not come from a dog's mind or a, or a rat's mind. It will have a completely different nature with different minds. You know, and, and probably some human being that lived 10,000, well, some human being that lived in the remote past would probably not impute cutness to this either. Who knows what they would impute to it. Uh, remember the gods must be crazy, the code. <laughs> so, what is, what is, the, the reality is that uh, your mind is a collection of different mental processes which themselves are uh, collections of other smaller subsidiary mental processes that themselves are the, uh, the made of a collection of neural networks with very specific functions which themselves are made up of nerve cells which themselves are made up of atoms and electrons, protons, neutrons, so on and so forth. So, you know, it's just, no matter how deep you go, it, everything's made up of parts, and everything's constantly changing. So, the, the idea that we are, that there is any kind of single and enduring or persistent self, and by persistent or enduring, I mean, even for an hour, even for a minute, there isn't. It's a, it's a flux. It's a flux. And if we examine it deeply enough and honestly enough, we find that the illusion of separation disappears. Everything is totally interconnected. And a really obvious way is that, that the atoms and molecules and subatomic particles that make up your body including your brain, are constantly changing. But that's not even, that's not even the, the real, that's not really getting down to the essence of it. This, this constructed self that you think you are, if you were to reflect on how it got constructed to be the way it is, why your mind works the way it does, it's enormously dependent upon all of the other people that you've been in contact with and all of the events that you've, you've been involved in. But you, your, your construct of self is actually something, it's a community project. And since the day you were born, starting with your parents and everybody else you come in contact with, everybody's contributed to manufacturing the self. And you have likewise contributed to manufacturing everybody else's self. And there is a level at which you know this. Because if everybody in this room thought you were a thief and a liar, it would have a tremendous impact on you. Now, why would that be true? Even if you were never going to see or have contact with anybody in this room, after today for the rest of your life. It's going to bother you. Because a lot of who you are resides outside of yourself. It's derived from other people in the course of your life. And that's a lot of where it exists. 
and we find ourselves going through our lives uh, trying to make people believe we're what we would like to be, and if we can convince enough people that we are that, then it's then we are that. <laughs> So that's just a, a, a brief approach to what the self is. The self is an illusion. There is a level at which the self is real. But it's not real in the way that it appears to be. Each, each individual in this room has a degree of separation even though we are ultimately totally interconnected with each other, with all other sentient beings, and for that matter with everything else in the universe. And that's one of the one of those weird things that physics tells us now is that every particle in the universe is still somehow connected to every other one and affected by whatever happens to it. You know, not that you can necessarily wrap your mind around that. But it's 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 telling you that yeah this this really is the way it is even in physical sciences tell you that so who are you really <laughs> you are an assemblage of parts you have you have a body and a mind. Well, if we examine that a little more closely, um, we don't know for sure whether you have a body or not. But you have sensations that your mind thinks correspond to a body, right? So we have sensations. And then we are our feelings. We're happy or sad, pain, pleasure. We, have, we are a whole collection of perceptions including the perception of who I think I am, and who I think you are, and who I think we all are, and what this place is, and everything else. And then there is the mind itself, all these unconscious processes that have stored away our past experiences and are constantly causing us to react emotionally and to speak and to act in particular ways. All these constructs of the mind that have accumulated over a lifetime of experience, which, by the way, are constantly changing, too. Those are totally unique to us. No, no two of us have the same construct. So there is, there, that, there is an element of difference. Even though we're totally interconnected, there's still, there is, still is a reality to the, the separateness. And then there is consciousness. That's the other part of us. We are conscious. You have conscious experience. As a matter of fact, that's closer to the reality of who you are than anything else. If we take away all of your conscious experience, what is left? absolutely nothing. You could infer that there still might be an unconscious mind and you can infer that there might actually be a body that's responsible for those sensations after all. But you don't know for sure. 
in terms of anything with any certainty to it, you take away consciousness and there is nothing left. So that's where your, your reality lies in consciousness. Your uniqueness lies in that collection of mental constructs that cause your mind to behave in the way it does, which mm. cause you to behave in the way you do and feel and think so forth the way you do. And then, of course, there is a very unique perspective. No two of us experience reality in the same way. We each live in a completely different universe. So, in that regard, the self is real. But, the, but that's not the self that we go through our lives imagining as real. But it's the self we go through our lives imagining that's causing all of our problems. <laughs> yeah. I hope you don't mind if I, if I go back to the intention and the forcing um, briefly. In a conversation with someone, the feeling then that if I'm being mindful, that it's a bit weird, let's say, could that be, say it's a bit weird, or you know, I'm having a conversation and it feels a bit strange, um, could that be because I've had the intention in my meditation to be internally aware and also to be mindful of how I'm feeling and how the person responses and, and then that happens then automatically when I'm having a conversation with someone carried over from the meditation um, this kind of internal awareness and uh, focusing in closely on the person that's happening automatically I don't have any control over it uh, and it's, but it's unnatural to, to my usual way of having a conversation um, it's not that I'm necessarily forcing my attention on the person or forcing myself to look inside myself internally as I'm having a conversation. It's just that I've made that intention in meditation that's carrying over into the world, into, into a, a communication with someone. Is that, is that possible? Yes. Well, you, you, yes, you practice this in meditation <coughs> and it will carry over. And yeah, while you're aware of it as, yeah, as something new and different, it might feel weird or strange. But what happens is you, you so quickly become used to mindfulness that you reach a point where the only thing that tells you you're mindful is when you're looking at somebody else or talking to someone and you realize how mindful they are not. And you say to yourself, oh, I used to be like that. As it becomes, it becomes your new status quo very quickly. But yeah, you go through a period where it, it, it's novel. And if it does feel a bit uncomfortable or inappropriate, I just have to have the intention when I'm having conversations with people, not to be too internally aware, perhaps. That's what you were saying earlier. Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem appropriate. I'd say the main thing is, if, if it feels uncomfortable, be aware that it feels uncomfortable. Right. Make a, but uh, if it's in, interfering with your ability to interact with somebody else, Then, then you should formulate the intention to interact more fully with the person. This really ties in with something that came up for me yesterday as well, when you were saying that, my, that peripheral awareness uh, makes you less, less feeling less solid. But, but then my experience has been sometimes, just like you said then, 
when I've been listening to, when I've been engaging with someone, I have, I have been feeling, I have a feeling of superiority sometimes because I think that person isn't really listening, or they're not being mindful, or they're all over the place. Whereas I'm, I'm here, you know, I'm, I'm aware of the fact that they're all over the place, uh, and and so I, I get, I have this this issue of um, pride comes out and superiority comes out, mm -hmm. um, and that's quite, that's a quite a sep that's a quite a separate feeling. That's, that's a, mm -hmm. So so. Do you have any advice on how to work with that? Uh, recognize it for what it is. Yeah. Pride. Recognize that it's, on the one hand, not warranted. Uh, on the other hand, potentially problematic because if you feel if you feel pride, you're more likely to do or say something that afterwards you'll regret. I suppose there is a, I mean, there is an element of reality in the fact that I am being more mindful, or it yeah. seems like I'm being more there, mindful. Yeah, that's, that's an objective fact. Right. To say, I'm being mindful, and I'm more mindful than this other person. That's an objective fact. Hmm. It's, it's only when some other part of your mind latches onto that fact arising in consciousness and starts incorporating it into the ego construct that, you know, in that, in that case, uh, that's, <laughs> that's, that's hmm? that, that brings you back to the issue that you've been discussing about yeah. building up the idea of self. Building up the idea of self. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> so you'll be talking more later in the retreat about this thing that you've characterized as the real self? Because I'd like to hear more about that. Yes, yes. We, that's, that's, what we'll, that's what we can talk more about. The real self? What's that? What's the real self? Real self. Oh, the real he, self. He said there real was self. actually a real <laughs> self <laughs> in some way. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. I don't want to miss that. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's not well. <laughs> Let's put it differently. There, there is a basis, but there isn't. But it's not. It, it's absolutely not the kind of self that you have believed in your whole life and probably still believe in. But you know, the best illustration of this. Have you heard of Indra's net? Indra's net of jewels. Okay. Did you say that again? Indra's net of jewels, which is a, it's a it's an infinite net of jewels, and each jewel has infinite facets, and each facet reflects the entire net. Amazing idea. Right? So that means the entire net is in every jewel, and every jewel is in every part of the entire net. It's an amazing concept, an amazing idea. But this is more like the reality. The reality is, what is, is Indra's net? What appears to be a self, but really isn't, 
is each one of those jewels. Each one of those jewels occupies a unique place So it's just, it's kind of a metaphor for it. So what is your real self? Is your real self the entire net? In a sense, it is. In, in a sense, it is. It has, yeah. On the other hand, is there any reality to the, the to any particular jewel? There is also a reality of that as well. So we could call it, you could say, there is ultimate, the ultimate self and ultimate reality is the net. And there is no separation. And, and so without separation, it's a totally, we call it the self, but what does it mean to be a self when self is everything and there's no other? Call that your ultimate self. And then the other is, is the relative self, the apparent self, the self that's constructed out of different parts, constantly changing, and isn't really independent in any way from the rest. You ought to run for office. <laughs> <laughs> Who's chasing me? It's all, are you saying it's all connected? Yeah, yes. That's that. That's absolutely. We're, we're, it's it's all connected. We're all connected, and we have this wonderful opportunity to, on behalf of of the whole of of us, to experience this aspect of the whole. So each of you is a jewel that gets an opportunity to reflect the rest of Indra's net. We have a big job to do. Hmm? We have a big job to do. Yeah, but we're definitely up to the task. But we're up to it. That's right. <laughs> no problems at all there. First intention. What's that? First intention. <laughs> Before we do the job. The, the only difficulty in the whole thing is that this very useful idea of self we are attached to and it makes us suffer. And when we look at the whole situation and examine it, we find that the suffering that's caused by that is totally unnecessary. <coughs> so we might as well just get rid of that part. of being mindful conversation has to do with the fact that you have a sense of the self that that person sees you as and it's not something that you necessarily feel connected with or that you or you may but you feel that you have to shift selves you know what I'm saying when you're one person with one with talking to one person you're another person because they have to perception of you you know what I'm saying uh, and so it's difficult to remain mindful because, well, I'm not sure I can use it, but that sort of occurred to me that it's, 
because people regard you differently. People see you as different. Yes. I mean, this person does not, in my perception anyway, which is the key, I suppose, this person sees me as one self, person. This person may see me as a yeah. The person that I yell at on the road may not see me at all, but like this other person that I've just had a good, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I, I'm not sure I got the whole thing that you're saying, but the last part you're saying is absolutely true, that, that every person has a different idea of who you are. And not only that, you become a different person in the presence. Yeah. Yeah. And we feel really uncomfortable when we're in the presence of two people that we relate to in totally different ways. How, which self am I supposed to be? So that's why mindfulness to me seems difficult sometimes. Well, that I suppose that could be just being more in touch with that could contribute. I think the most, the, the, the main reason that being mindful in an interaction with another person is going to make you uncomfortable uh, is the first one that I mentioned, which is that if you're not really good at it, if it doesn't happen really smoothly, you feel divided. That's that's one problem. The other thing is, uh, could be something like uh, what uh, uh, Peter mentioned about if you realize that you're, if you have this idea that, well, I'm more mindful than this person, then pride arises and things like that. And, and uh, that can make you, you feel uncomfortable. As mindfulness matures, there is not going to be any it's not going to be uncomfortable. It's, it's going to become natural. It's going to become natural to uh, be aware of what's going on in your own mind, even when you're interacting with other people. And it's not going to be uncomfortable. Okay? So it seems in that instance that, that, that pride melts into compassion. Right, and also into compassion. Yeah, because yeah. if you're with another person and you're and you're and you're and you have a sense of um, being more aware, being more mindful, being more present, and there's there's pride around that piece. Yeah. That pride, pride is something that arises from some part of your mind that doesn't yet really understand the way things are. Yeah, and and so that, that by melting into compassion, I mean. That you know. Uh, well, how can I say that? You know, I mean, it just seems like it just melts into compassion. I mean, with further down the road, you know. If what you're saying is that instead of being proud that I'm more mindful than somebody else, yeah. I have compassion for the for fact that, that person that who's that suffering and still and suffering as a result yeah, of the lack of mindfulness. Exactly. And for myself, thinking that I'm more than, that I'm separate yeah, than the other person, also. Yeah. So it goes both ways. Yeah. Mm -hmm.